0: You're listening to Chicago Writes, a podcast of the Chicago Writers Association. On this episode of Chicago Writes, we meet with two of this year's Book of the Year winners, Lois Roloff and Rita Woods. I'm your host, W.C. Turk. Lois Watinga Roloff is one of the CWA's Book of the Year winners for her moving memory, Marvin Charge, a story of bold bold love and courage from Deep River Books. Her website is loisroloffs.com. Welcome to uh, to Chicago Writes.
1: Yeah, thank you very much. I'm happy to be here.
0: I purposely left out a description of your story uh, because I thought it would be more powerful coming from you. But let me make this observation first. Uh, as I said in the introduction, it's really less of a memoir as it is a memory and a guide to to others following your footsteps. Is that fair?
1: Yes, yes.
0: Tell us a little bit about uh, about the book.
1: Okay, the book started when my husband asked me to write it. Uh-huh. And that was about halfway after his diagnosis of small cell lung cancer. Okay. To backtrack, he was had a chest pain on January three of 2018. It was finally diagnosed uh, with after several tests and doctors' visits, the end of January when we were en route to Arizona uh-huh. And he said, as we, as he got the doctor's call in Dodge City in the tourist little place I'm not interested in treatment here talk to my wife she's a nurse she'll know what you're talking about yeah. so we'd been waiting for that call because he had a um he had a lump we'd discovered and yeah. had had a biopsy so I got on the phone and he said very quickly and softly uh something like your husband doesn't realize how serious this is. He may have only a few weeks to live. Um, You need to come back to Chicago right away or go to Mayo when you hit Phoenix. And um, he, that was the start of it all. He refused treatment. And his, his um, famous line throughout the whole time was, I've lived a good life. If this is God's I feel blessed. If this is God's time for me, I'm ready to go. So that few weeks that were predicted that he was going to live, um, he got that prediction the end of January, he did live almost symptom free until uh, July. And on July 5th was the first turn they had told us, he would have a level trajectory, and then suddenly drop off. Wow. And that's, happened. He really did well until that first week. In fact, the day after July five, and he died uh, 20 days later. So the really rough time was um, less than three weeks. So we were very, um, you know, very blessed to have that time to prepare. Of course, we ran around right away, we came home from Arizona and, and got our trust updated. Our kids right away said, oh, we want to hear dad's stories. We've never asked him about raised being raised on the farm. And my son-in-law found somebody who could help us with that. So we raced around and Marv dictated a book. Mm. And we saw everybody that I would need to take care of the finances afterwards. And then we, in essence, just waited for him to die. And around the middle of February, we figured we're, we're all ready now. We've got everything done. And um, since he was still fine, he had no symptoms except a lump outside his chest. Okay. So we ended up over time making three farewell trips. Marv said, we're the ones that moved out here. We had lived in Chicago mm-hmm. for 50 years. We moved to South Dakota to be near our daughter. And he said, we're the ones that moved way out here. I don't want them all to have to come here for my funeral. So we're going to them to say goodbye. Wow well,
0: that's that's a blessing. I, I both my parents passed um suddenly and oh. um, down in down in Texas and uh, we're up here in Chicago, so there was no opportunity to say goodbye uh, i had I had worked on getting uh, some of my my dad's early memories um, on video and some of his 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 famous biscuit recipe. Um, but that it was that was really a, a blessing. and I, I i thought it sort of had this epic adventure to to the story. Uh, is is that is that a, an unfair characterization?
1: No, that's kind of the way we saw it. Um yeah. I hate it. And I talk about that. I hate the word journey, even though journey can have a positive connotation. Yeah, yeah. To me, it sounded like we're plodding along. We're plodding along. But we had surprises every time we turned around and we were learning, you know, what's it like to prepare for dying? What is it like to live with the uncertainty? We went, um, we, I say, we went on hospice right away. Mm -hmm. If you have a few weeks to live and hospice treats the family. So that's why I say we. And it was delightful. They encouraged us to keep traveling, do whatever we wanted to do. So as a retired nurse, I especially valued those nurses' input. By the time we made our third trip, though, I felt like people were going to get tired of saying goodbye to us. But it was an adventure um, all along, and Marv was upbeat all along. I think he cried. He wept one time. There were a few times that he kind of started to cry. But otherwise, he was stoic, resolute, never changed his mind. And he knew what he wanted to do, um, not take treatment. And he knew he wanted to die at home. Mm -hmm. So um, the rest of us just had to roll with it.
0: I I like the use of the word we, uh, because you could have very easily made the book about your experience and your perception. Uh, instead, you build out the narrative to show uh, a wider community perspective, friends, family, uh, especially by interjecting your late husband's thoughts, right?
1: I didn't see it as a story just about me, yeah. because if he would not have had this diagnosis yeah. and he would not have decided to refuse treatment, you know, we don't know how you're doing this. How, how do you not fight you know cancer uses military metaphors you got to fight it's a battle
2: yeah
1: and the um marv had decided this already but as the oncologist told us you'll be sick for a few weeks with chemo Mm -hmm. you'll rally for a few weeks Mm -hmm. and then you'll be sick again and then you may rally this may go on and on but he said in the end you're going to be sick and die
0: I don't want to give away the book, um, but uh, in, in a bit I, I'm going to bring up some things that I think gets inside that decision um, and that that outlook. So I, I wanted to go here first. You said that Marv had the idea for uh, for the book, correct?
1: I was just blogging and telling him about the responses I was getting, and then one day we had the um, editor of the book Marv had dictated yeah he was over and um he just said to him uh yeah Lois is going to write this and i thought oh yes am i am i going to write a book about this and he had said well you know it's you got to tell people they have this option they have an option to refuse treatment and then as a nurse having dealt with a lot of patients having cancer and also many of our relatives Um, I had three siblings, several in-laws, all dying of cancer. I'd heard so many cancer stories, so many chemo stories, so many radiation stories. And um, if the situation is all in place for a person like it was for my husband, it certainly is a viable option. But yes, he wanted me to write it. And one of my friends said, Lois, I think he suggested that just to keep you busy
0: <laughs> well Every... i think there's a there's a therapeutic aspect to first your blog at um at lois I, I i guess because you guys were were so close and so symbiotic in your thinking if that was an aspect of why he wanted you to write this book as well uh as a means of of healing
1: that could have been a part of it um he just knew, you know, I'd written one book already. And since I had a blog, you know, you can make our story into a story. And as I looked around contemplating this, I could not find a book written by anybody who had refused treatment. Yeah. And I thought, well, it can serve a purpose out there. When, yeah. when I talked to groups about this, I'm very careful to say this is our story, yeah. And um, I'm not saying you should forego treatment. I am saying if you want to know how one couple handled this situation, you can get it from my book. And so I've had uh, a fair amount of feedback saying this helped me a lot.
0: You know, it's a growing body of work out there about death and dying, but we're really lacking those blunt, honest conversations about about that process, the grieving process, and and the the person who's passing, right?
1: Yes, I searched a lot of places, and after Marv died, I went to four different grief groups,
2: mm-hmm. and
1: I was happy to have a problem because I had taught mental health nursing and sent. Yeah. My students to support groups, and I thought I want to have a problem so I can go. So um, since Marv prepared me so well for his dying, you know, I'm the one who's dying. You are not, so you go on living. That gave me a lot of license to um, to do what I wanted to do. So I went to these grief groups, and I was disappointed in each one. Uh, it's it's really hard because. Everybody grieves in a different way and like for example, one group I went to had a packaged program. You watched a video and then you talked about it. That just wouldn't work for me to have a packaged program. And having led a lot of group therapy sessions in my day, I thought we need to know where these people are coming from.
2: yeah yeah so,
1: um, yeah I I just grieved in my own way and as far as writing the book, I found, Since it is a compilation of my blog posts and emails and my personal notes, Mm -hmm. my notebook was just three and a half by five inches. But I kept notes in that the whole time. I think I transferred to a four by six at some point. Mm -hmm. But as I wrote those truncated notes, I had to make them into sentences and paragraphs. Then I did just kind of have tears roll down my face the whole time. So I think if I did any act of grieving, I did it in that first version of, my, of this book.
0: Yeah, that emotion comes right off the pages. Um, I find myself tearing up a number of times. When, when Marv passes, uh, we are right there with you. Um, you start with an interesting quote uh, from the poet uh, Mary Oliver. You can have the other words, luck, coincidence, serendipity, I'll take grace. I don't know what it is exactly, but I'll take it. How did those words feed the process of writing this book? And more importantly, facing your partner's mortality.
1: Well, we are people of faith. So we're grounded in that to begin with. Mm -hmm. So I've often just in my life, you know, well, this was a God sighting or a God thing. And then with grace being uh, defined for, for me anyway, as an undeserved um, gift, I saw things that happened like a phone call, a card, something, so many things happened that we didn't plan on yeah. and a person not based the way we are, were, he was. Um, would call that, you know, oh, what a coincidence or what, you know, serendipity that this is happening. And I do want to include everybody um, as readers, because I know there are people that aren't, don't have our background. And I am not trying to proselytize and push my background on anybody. But I do suggest for people to know where their strength comes from. Yeah, if it's a higher power, if it's the universe, whatever it is, ours was God, but you are going to have to identify that if you're going through a situation like this, because yeah. you'll draw from it.
0: You're a walker, and uh, Mary uh, was a uh, was a fan of long solitary walks in nature. Um, something I rest uh, with uh, uh, rest from the world almost every day. Uh, Well, not quite solitarily, but uh, there's our dog, Millie. But thankfully, she's a dog, very few words. Uh, (laughs) But a lot of Mary Oliver's worldview was inspired by nature. You obviously, at least from from the narrative, seem to follow that example. You you sort of found these quiet moments of solitude in which you could get inside of yourself and gain a clear perspective.
1: I would like to say I'm an avid walker. I'm an avid wannabe walker, but I found most, or I find most of my solace right at home, Mm -hmm. uh, especially now living alone. Um, I have time to, to read and contemplate, and I've always been a thinker. Probably my kids would say a Perseverator. (laughs) You know, if mom gets an idea, we're going to hear about it uh, every day and it'll be a little different the next day. And one of my sisters and I, when we would get together, we would always say, okay, we've got four hours today. We lived in different states. And so we're going to study, we're going to talk about the meaning of life, the meaning of death, the meaning of work and the meaning of retirement. So I go way back with discussing things like that.
0: Did that come from your father who was, who was a minister, right?
1: Yes. He was a pastor and he was very serious person. And we kids attributed that to, he lost his family, um, very young. And so he would consider himself an orphan Mm -hmm. and, um, he never talked about it. It was, uh, a brother to appendicitis, and parents and a sister to a tragic accident in the late 20s. So he always would consider himself an orphan. And my mother, if I knew anything about the accident, it would be from my mother. My dad would always say he was lonely. And he described that it's not lonesome, but lonely is an existential, existential feeling. Mm-hmm. And so I had that pensiveness from him.
0: I, I don't want to gloss over the, uh, the faith aspect of this book because it's such a core, uh, part of the narrative. Um, and I love this line. Uh, I would, I wouldn't recommend getting cancer to have the profound experiences we are having, but it's been a huge wake up call to slow down and listen for God's presence. I- I'd love you to, uh, riff on that a little bit
1: i think i'm i'm talking to the reader as much as i'm talking to myself yeah because i've been my husband was definitely type a um i think compared to him i was type f Mm -hmm. but compared to other people i'm probably a little type a too and uh, i can't say probably (laughs) because i have people say to me lois where are you going now you've accomplished so much, blah, blah, blah. And Marv would always tell me, don't compare yourself to me, because he always did, you know, a whole lot more. But Mm -hmm. I think um, I do have to remind myself to not overbook myself. Um, You know, just take time and contemplate and think through. um, And I do perseverate. And now that I have my my cadre of older friends, and we go for lunch, we generally talk a lot about um, what's happening to us as we age, and we're trying not to be morose, but I did have a serious fall on Michigan Avenue last fall. I came for Printer's Row in Chicago, uh, never never made it, so my friend who was with me uh, was in the uh, CWA tent with with my book. Wow. And, and that was one thing she said to me, Lois, you were running, you know, that's why you fell. Um, I tripped over some cracked pavement, which we'll find in Chicago, and I face planted on Michigan Avenue. So I do have to remind myself, okay, stop, count to 10. You don't need a full day.
0: And you suffer um, fibromyalgia, um, like my wife does. Um, so I, I know that stress can can trigger flare-ups, but... You don't focus on that in this in this book, and I, I can imagine there must have been a phenomenal of stress.
1: Yes, I didn't stress on it. I do write about it. You know, my fibromyalgia is a ten out of ten mm-hmm. on some days, but I was diagnosed in the late nineties. Mm-hmm. So, having lived with it for over twenty years, yeah, I learned what works, what doesn't work. And I must say, I mean, I also get a flare with you stress, EU stress, because that's good stress. Um, so I did have some fibro flares, as they're called, as Marv was um, in this process, yeah. of dying. But um, I didn't have time to to think about it. Yeah. You know, I did what I had to do. And as you've read, um, my, my children were marvelous toward the end. Mm-hmm. My son flew in from out of town. My daughter lived in town. Uh, she had, they both have a great sense of humor. So they, and we all have, and I probably from my nursing thing, I have some black humor, but we all have kind of a raucous sense of humor. So it was like, um, you know, mom, you look dreadful. Here's my car keys, go to my house and, and sleep. I don't want to see you. So my daughter rescued me a few times that last few weeks, and I didn't even realize how exhausted I was um, until those final three weeks.
0: This is an incredibly intimate book. You lay everything bare here. Um, You write, quote, right there on the porch of the museum, I turned off the phone and burst into tears. The enormity of what lay ahead hit me hard right between my eyes. My head pounded, not again. We've been here before. How would we deal with the challenge this time? How would I hold up? I realized almost immediately that I'd have to muster up more strength than ever before. How difficult was it to open up so fully for this for this narrative? Uh, or was that even a consideration against so powerful a, a topic?
1: I would say that's naturally me.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: I, I probably to a fault would share too much. Uh Uh, it was helpful having different editors along the way. Uh, One particularly told me, Lois, you're a nurse, but your readers are not all nurses. (laughs) So she said, "Uh, you know, this, this is pretty heavy duty. And then one of my beta readers said, oh, Lois, after reading your book, I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. You know, and I'm like, what? And it was the graphic descriptions I had written that that kind of scared her away. But I, I did also want to to lay it out that this is not an easy road. Yeah. However, if you have your support systems um, and you are not afraid to call on them, mm-hmm. uh, that's I mean, don't try to be a hero and go on hospice right away. You've got that nurse there every week, and you can have additional help as you go along. Yeah. And just knowing that they're the, at the other end of the phone line at all times. The night that Marv died, I didn't know he was going to die. And the yeah. nurse called and asked if she could stay with me. And I thought, why? <laughs> you know, why stay with me? So, I mean, their, their presence was valuable, invaluable.
0: He never viewed his refusal to undergo treatment as a betrayal, even though you were clawing for every possible moment with him, right? You seem to argue those feelings through the book, uh, like this passage. Early on, I did feel tremendously uh, angry at tobacco manufacturers for making such an addictive product. However, I could not muster up any feeling of anger towards God, or certainly not towards Marv. And then later on, you write this. I feel more and more alone as the spouse of someone living with stage four small cell lung cancer who has chosen not to seek treatment. I found no one whose spouse uh, has made the same choice. So I have no one with whom to share my anxiety about when uh, our untreated situation will change and what that change will look like. You really do take us on that journey with you.
1: Right, that was um, the most difficult thing was the uncertainty yeah. um, when you're told he'll be going fine and then drop off. Yeah. I mean it was so almost like is this going to be the day, and you wake up and say okay, there is another day here, but we didn't dwell on that uncertainty. Yeah. Um, I mean it was just there, yeah. and about his making the decision. To refuse treatment, he was a man who was extremely assured of his decisions, yeah. and always had been very stoic, very grounded. Um, I have had people ask, "Well, did he ask you if it was okay to die at home?" And I had to think about it. No, he never asked me. I mean, if you're married, you know, over fifty years. Yeah. You kind of know the other person.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: I never thought to say, "Hey, honey, I'm not sure I can handle this," because he would have said, "You, you'll handle it." Yeah. And he did say that to me about living as a widow. He said, "You'll do fine." Now you know when the water heater burst and or water softener—I don't know the difference between these things—and mm-hmm. was spewing water all over, and I'm complaining to my kids. They just say, mom, you're doing fine. Don't you realize dad told you you're doing fine.
0: <laughs> Sounds like a good guy. You offer you offer these larger considerations from both you and Marv. Quote, uh, I've lived a good life, he said. I've been blessed. If this is God's time for me, I'm okay with it. And then you add, considering his age, medical history, and the length of our marriage, I knew I had been blessed too. In that moment, I'd found peace that enabled me to honor his wish to say no to the chemo and pulmonologist uh, had said was necessary. That's such an astounding indication of, of your shared commitment.
1: It all kind of fell together because we've had a habit through our whole marriage of talking after dinner. You know, I would have my day, he would have his after dinner, uh we would sit for an hour, sometime an hour and a half and process our days. Now I I should be very honest and say I probably took up more of that hour than he did, but he was a very good um listener. And if I would get riled about anything at work or with the kids, I could go blah, 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 blah. And he would go, uh-huh, hmm Well, that'll pass. You know, you'll uh that'll work out. When I wrote that statement, I thought that was an accumulation of all those years of talking and listening to each other. He didn't have time to sit except for that hour. He was on the go.
0: He would have these after I'm gone talks with you. You wrote, uh, last night, Marv gave me another after I'm gone talk. I went to the bedroom and cried. He tells me to be thankful we've had such extra time together. It all feels surreal. Uh, as he uh, as he's now busy in the garage, like normal, that is surreal and belies the nature of of this illness that it's almost unbelievable at times, right?
1: Ah, uh, yes, it is, except he took ownership of his smoking from uh, early on. Yeah. And I always knew, especially as a nurse, that Uh, Lung cancer was a possibility. Mm -hmm. So um, I had come home in the early 70s from work with a thank you for not smoking decal uh, that American Lung Society had put out. And I put it on the back door and he never smoked in the house after that. But it was always there. And he tried, he tried and he tried. Pills, gum, hypnosis, yeah. He tried it all to quit smoking, and he finally said, "I have to have it. I've got this internal motor going all the time, and that's what calms me down." Yeah. So he used it as a self-medicating approach, along with caffeinated coffee. He was probably a very, very classic ADHD, where you know the uppers helped him uh, slow down a little bit.
0: It could have been my dad, really. Yeah. A fireman and an iron worker uh, who uh, who smoked and uh, pounded coffee to excess. Uh, oh. But it, it kept him happy and calm, and we loved him for it. Um, so then there were the, the hallucinations. You wrote, something serious has happened to Marv's brain. Uh, my whole body felt slammed by the starkness of the reality uh, that was right before my eyes. I was losing my husband, I knew. The intelligent, rational guy who could always answer my questions, whether he knew the answer or not, was leaving me. The guy who diapered our kids, driven them to orthodontia, discussed issues with them as teens at our supper table. I thought to quickly snap snap a picture. Uh, he was on his hands and knees. That is, the the I I was I was brought to tears at at that because I I could I could feel myself in in your in your place or your kid's place seeing that happen to to my father
1: you know it started out kind of funny we were in bed one night and out of the blue he said to me get that cat off your shoulder yeah and i'm like you're kidding you know we first of all there's no cat on my shoulder secondly we don't own a cat Mm -hmm. and he said get it off your shoulder so i just took a sweeping brush with my hand and he said okay now it's gone and so that was my first indication that something was happening that was awry. however when the nurse um, I called the nurse in the morning um, you know then they that was an indication it had gone to his brain I just followed him around part of the time I was in a stupor, but I thought I need to write this down. Mm-hmm. He wants me to write this book. He wants me to write everything and not hold back. I I kind of was more nurse as a clinician then as instead of nurse as wife, but to see him on his hands and knees with a dustpan on my um, living room floor trying to, well, he, he uh, swept things into the dustpan and came and held it in front of me he said see see um that there was white stuff on the floor and all i could think of was that maybe his brain was hyper alert and picked up little pieces of lint i mean i didn't see a thing
2: yeah
1: he did the same thing he's he swears there was a red worm on the living room floor and i mean of course there was nothing there and so he's telling our pastor when he came over. Yeah, Lois, I see a red worm, but Lois doesn't see it. You know, like it's my fault that I right. don't see it.
2: Right.
1: And with the pastor sitting there, Marv leaned forward and said, see it? See it? There it is. There's the worm. And our pastor is, is wonderful with all kinds of situations. And he just went, uh-huh. <laughs> you know, just didn't appear shocked but, and didn't say anything. But yep, it's there.
0: You do, you mentioned the, uh, the pastor, um, you do a, uh, a unique and powerful job, uh, that I I haven't seen, uh, in, in any other literature on, uh, on death and dying, where you describe these preparations for Marv's funeral, uh, and the obituary and all that. And I could feel him there with this going on around him, um, the preparations for, for his passing almost as if he's alone on this island he, there's this there's this feeling of solitude uh, that is unshakable in in those moments
1: um it was very meaningful i had just come back from the iowa summer writing festival i planned to do that when marv was only going to live a couple of weeks and he said go ahead and sign up you'll need something this summer Well, I had just back from that and a woman in our church had passed away and Marv had taken that bulletin home. And when I came home, he said, I want you to pattern my service after that. So I did scratch out a service and had the pastor come over, asked him to come over so we could go over it. And uh, we just talked about it, the three of us sitting in like a triangle in our living room and. Um, he, he just said, I, I'm not used to having all my work done for me. And I thought, you don't know my husband. He is going to direct this until he's gone.
0: So on this program, we're, we're going to kind of, uh, move to the, to the close here. Uh, on this program, we, we explore book marketing strategies. Uh, you want people to read this book for Marv's legacy, uh, but also for the, that important lesson Of the book. Um, I saw you set up a number of events last summer. Tell us about the significance of those events towards marketing the book, which sort of feels like rather crass in this context, but but an important consideration.
1: Um, Yes, I decided early on that if I got the book done, that the important thing was to get Marv's message out. And to also include everything I could from Atul Gawande's book, Being Mortal. That's Mm -hmm. essential for older people to read. Talks about the medicalization of illness when you're older. And just because there's stuff out there to keep us alive doesn't mean we have to do it, take it. But I thought I don't want to fuss with doing, figuring out taxes, doing whatever. I want to get the book out. Yeah. So what I have done so far is given out complimentary copies. I'm not interested in being rich off this. Uh, I'm, I'm interested in getting Marv's story out. Yeah. So I have not sold books. If people insist on paying me something, I take the money and forward it to Marv's hospice. Oh, that's
0: brilliant. Um, you end with this great summation, um, those deeper thoughts and lessons that I think are, are part of all great memoirs, not the least of which was this uh, symbiotic relationship and energy between, uh, between you and Marv. Quote, throughout, he naturally embodied his belief that if this was God's time for him, he was ready to go home. I was thankful too that I'd made it even though I'd come close to to the edge. It felt like Marv must have sensed I was at my breaking point and decided to pass away right at that time
1: we've actually had some um giggles about that because he died at 4 Uh a.m and entire life he was in bed at 9 or 10 and was up at 4 Mm -hmm. so when he died at 4 it was like okay dad knew he was going someplace and yeah it was a beautiful death it was a beautiful occasion he went very Um, quietly he went very quietly. I was sleeping behind him, as was my, my habit, and I had my arm around him, my right arm around him. I sensed, I was sleeping, and I sensed there was no movement. And so I opened my eyes and started counting, one, two, three, and about on the count of 10 or 11, he took one deep breath. And exhaled, and that was it. It it couldn't have been better. Uh, With my daughter sleeping over that night, she was right there. My son was on a trip to Iceland. Um, She was calling him. His wife had gone to breakfast, and he thought, There's something I'm waiting for here. And he was still in their hotel room when the phone rang. And it was Kathleen telling John, and John said, Dad's gone. So, you know, it just. (laughs) Another grace thing. My son didn't go to breakfast with his wife. He was there for the phone call. The, the nurse came right when we called her. She set up um, a liturgy for us to read. It was really the most sacred, one of the most, I would say, sacred moments in my life.
0: The book is a powerful lesson in dignity and grace. Lois Watinga Roloff is a book of the year movie memoir, Marvin Charge*. A Story of Bold Love and Courage from Deep River Books. Her website is loisroloffs.com. Thank you. This was, um, I, I, I appreciate your, your candor. And, and.
1: Well, thank you, Bill. Your questions were very astute. I really appreciated them.
0: A few quick announcements before we get to our conversation with Rita Woods. Now is the time to join Chicago Writers Association. It's open to writers and authors anywhere in the world. Unlock a wealth of writer and author resources, programs and benefits for just $25 per year by visiting ChicagoWrites.org or click on the link in the notes below. Chicago Writers Association membership, by the way, makes a great gift. Don't forget to like Chicago Writers Association on Facebook and join our worldwide community of authors, writers, publishers, editors, and more. Registration is now open for Let's Just Write Writers Conference March 22nd through the 24th, 2024 at Chicago's elegant Warwick Allerton Hotel. Let's Just Write was recommended by Reedsy as the best writing classes of 2023. And now, without further ado, my conversation with Rita Woods, the author of The Last Dreamwalker. Rita Woods' latest novel, The Dreamwalker, was just named one of Chicago Writers Association's Book of the Year. This sumptuous mystery is destined to take its place among the very best set along the coast of South Carolina. It has the drama and deep hues of Pat Conroy's Prince of Tides while exploring the tumultuous mystery as a daughter unravels her late mother's life, reminiscent of Sue Monk Kidd's The Secret Life of Bees. She received a BS in microbiology from Purdue University before graduating from Howard University College of Medicine. She completed her training at Creighton University in Omaha, Nebraska, and served as a medical director for a wellness center that provides care Uh, for members of one of the largest trade unions in the nation. Rita Woods has served as a member of the American Writers Program and as a mentor for Cinnamon Girls, an organization dedicated to encouraging creative writing in high school girls of color. Dr. Rita Woods is also the author of the award-winning novel Remembrance. Her website is RitaWoodsWrites.com. And after that, Rita, I'm sorry we're out of time. (laughs)
3: <laughs> okay. nice meeting you <laughs>
0: that, that's that's a hell of a resume for 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 anything let alone for an author welcome, yeah
3: welcome uh, a lot of caffeine
0: yeah i'm sure uh welcome to uh welcome to chicago Rates, by the way so I, I read in your bio that you love magic books history coffee and travel and that one of your pl- favorite places to visit are cemeteries i share that same passion when i was when i was touring and running around for years and years and years eastern europe um one of my favorite things and and haunts was to visit those old sometimes overrun and abandoned and half forgotten and and historically even whimsical uh cemeteries and so i'm gonna ask you here uh, maybe for a couple of your favorites and and how do cemeteries feed your imagination as a writer
3: so um i I too love the really abandoned ones the ones that you kind of stumble over yep um when i was writing um remembrance uh, um it actually takes place partly in ashtabula ohio Mm -hmm. and part of that was triggered by um my son was going to school, uh, boarding school out there, and we stumbled on this kind of in the middle of a field, um, this rundown in the middle of nowhere next to a muddy creek, these headstones. And I, I love places like that. Yeah. But one of my favorite places, and I, I really want to go back, is the Necropolis in Glasgow. It's this, I, I guess, I think it's like three or four or 500 years old, and it's built on these, on these hills and like the higher um, you go up on the hill, the older the, um, the grave sites. And I think part of it is this sort of sense of continuity yeah. that you can sit down and you read the headstones and you were getting sort of a, a snapshot of, of a life lived two, three, 400 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's hard not to feel, at least for me, and probably for you as well, since you like love cemeteries, mm-hmm. a, a sense of connection, a sense of something bigger than yourself, than this, you know, whatever your mortal life is, 60, 70, 80 years.
0: How does that feed your uh, your imagination as a writer?
3: I think it's the sense that there's story everywhere. Yeah. That yeah. Um, it's, and the best stories are not the most obvious, you know, it's not the ones where the fire trucks are racing to, at least for me. Um, those aren't the ones that really make me want to drill down. Yeah. So, you know, there's a, a murder mystery or a fire truck going to a fire or people going through a divorce. I, I, I know that for some people, those are they can find story there. Mm-hmm. But the, for me, the thing that's most fascinating that what that sparks my imagination the most intensely are the ones that are under the rocks. You know, you yeah. over you turn something over and you're always surprised by what lays beneath.
0: There's there's a solemnity to uh, to cemeteries as well, and a peacefulness. Uh, there there's that there's that depth of emotion, um, and that's important to a writer. How do you and I, I can imagine just just off of your resume alone, you lead an incredibly complex and busy life. Um, where do you find those quiet moments that are so important to a writer
3: every day I try to I wake up pretty early um, Uh quarter to five in the morning and I don't like to get right out of bed I like to listen to the quiet
2: yeah
3: Um, because when you lay there the quiet is not really quiet you can kind of hear the house settle around you um, the heat kick on and off Mm -hmm. um, out where I live which is kind of on the outskirts about 30 miles outside of the city um i can hear birds and you can hear the owls and the wind chimes
1: nice. and
3: for me that just feels very filling part of the reason i like traveling is because it takes all responsibility away from me right <laughs> if i'm in an airplane you know you're hurrying you're getting through the tsa you got that and, but once you're on the plane I, I it's out of my hands and so yeah. that. I know that sounds odd, but in a, even in a packed airplane, it's my quiet time. Nobody's asking me for anything. I have no responsibilities. I don't have to. It's all on the pilot and the flight attendants at that point.
0: These carve outs, in other words.
3: Yes, yes, exactly.
0: Yeah. All right, let's talk about uh, The Last Dreamwalker. It's a beautifully crafted novel that sweeps back and forth from the Civil War era to, to the modern day. As Layla comes to us, Following the passing of her mother, who has this curious ability, uh, which she has, along with part of of an island and its former slave plantation, passed on to Layla, right? Correct. You, You said it in South Carolina. How does a woman born and raised in Detroit and living in suburban Chicago come to write a breathtaking novel about the South Carolina coast?
3: I think it, it kind of harkens back a little bit to what we talked about earlier, finding yeah. these hidden stories. Um, so, the short version is, it, I if I'm fascinated by something, if something catches my attention, I want to kind of share it with the world, uh-huh. whether they, you know, whether they agree or not. And I was on a business trip to South Carolina, and then back at back in the day, and I got picked up back in the day before the age of Lyft and Uber my taxi driver picked me up from the airport and took me to my hotel and he starts speaking
1: mm-hmm. and he
3: was speaking Gullah. Okay. And it was one, Gullah is one of those languages, it's it's a, a dialect. So for there's that split second where your brain is still thinking English and there's enough of, of a um, threading through of English that you're like, yeah, yeah, wait, wait, what? And I, I was embarrassed to admit that I had I had no idea what Gullah was, mm-hmm. and from f- kind of from that moment on, I became really fascinated with the sort of the history of the Gullah Geechee and that part of the country. And I always thought everybody else must want to know about this. It's and sort so of that a creole dialect.
0: The... is it? hmm? It's it's kind of a it's kind of a creole dialect, or
3: it is a it's a creole dialect. So. It's based in English, but or I shouldn't say it's based in English. There is a large English component, but mm-hmm. it is a, a language that was sort of cobbled together by multiple tribes of Western Africa who came yeah. to settle this archipelago of islands off the Eastern seaboard yeah. so that they could communicate with each other. Mm-hmm. And if you listen to it long enough, it kind of makes sense. Like they'll say, um, come in and break it to teeth. And that basically means come in and have something to eat or you'll, they'll say like, I would be a kumya, you know, Mm -hmm. and they are binyas. So they've been here and I'm someone who's just coming. So there's a a real beautiful logic to it. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it sounds like you've traveled quite a bit. And if you've ever been to South Carolina, it's a beautiful part of the country um, with this very deep and wide history. And so you know who who could res- resist you know setting a story there, but then adding that component, which sort of hooked me in the first place, which was the Galagichi.
0: That so so rendering that um, that dialect can be can be kind of problematic for a writer. You can you can either um, negate negate in the reader's mind the intelligence of of the speaker um and and it and lose its meaning you you followed very closely to the dialect and managed to pull that off so that not only is is it engaging and accessible but but we don't lose any respect for the speaker
2: mm-hmm.
0: yeah was was that was that a was that a difficult thing for you to to do or was it was it natural how to because you're not a native
3: speaker no the hardest part when you're writing um stories Mm -hmm. that include uh um, a culture that's outside of your own and that includes the language Mm -hmm. is wanting to put enough in that you get the flavor of it without overwhelming people and having to skip over like i don't know what's going on let me just move Mm -hmm. so that was that part was intentional. Was I want people to realize that this is a very real culture, yeah. But I didn't want to. But it wasn't about the language per se. Although language informs culture, yeah. Um, but I didn't want to overwhelm the reader with, and pull them out of the story. Um, so that was that was sort of the calculus that I. Yeah, used. It, it it
0: really the way you rendered it really added a, a spice and a flavor. Uh, a regional spice and flavor, which I thought was uh, worked really well. Thank you. Really positively. You
3: know what's interesting is I did yeah. reach out to the partly at the behest of my editor mm-hmm. and publisher mm-hmm. to the Gullah Research Center in in Charleston, mm-hmm. and so I had these conversations with uh, people who are Gullah speakers. And okay. what was interesting was so they would read, and I'd say, well, I, I just want to make sure I have the spelling right. Mm-hmm. And they would have these arguments among themselves and their grandparents mm-hmm. about the spelling, and so finally, one of an older Gullah woman said, "Well, part of the reason we're having this conversation is it's not a written language; it's a it's a spoken language. So yeah. we're all gonna yeah. you might see six spellings."
0: Yeah, yeah. It it it, it seems like one of those uh, one of those ever evolving languages, but one of those languages that evolved from from as as you you point out. Um, the African tribes that came over and were filtered through all of these different influences and having to make their own way.
3: Right. Yeah. Right. Particularly the Gambia and Sierra Leone, heavy Sierra Leone um, influence.
0: I do this thing with (laughs) pretty much, pretty much every book um, where I try to find things on the map, on Google maps Um, (laughs) port royal and beaufort um is there a scotia island
3: there is not a scotia island mm-hmm. i um i kind of modeled it off of turtle island which is pretty much uninhabited but yeah. i wanted something that has of the same topography about the same size mm-hmm. um but i didn't being able to create my own island gave me a lot more freedom Mm -hmm. than saying, oh, you know, it's St. Helens Island. Because I knew someone from there would call and say, yeah, that's not how that works.
0: Um, At the core of this novel lies, uh, Layla's attempt to reconcile memories about her mother. Um, You render Layla's recollection of her mother spot on. Um, So many of us can relate to that. Where did that come from? Because it feels either autobiographical or um the antithesis of of your um your autobiography
3: it's very funny because in both books um there's these very fraught relationships with the maternal figure yeah and, and people have asked i'm like no I have, I have the most amazing mother so i'm not sure where all of that's channeling from mm-hmm. uh extraordinarily close but i do think You know, and I have occasionally these conversations come up with my kids. People will say, oh, your kids are wonderful. They're so polite. They're so wonderful. And you take a step back and go, my kids? (laughs) Um, So I think there's always this thought. My, My thought when writing it was the reinvention of self you know, who we are to the public versus who we are in private versus our relationships with individual people. Because even in the story, her mother has a completely different relationship with her brothers than she does with Layla. Mm -hmm. And so I think that was part of it too, for the story for me was trying to find that place where you try to find out who you are at the same time you're dealing with this other person who is really the most, probably the most important person in your life in terms of of forming your identity but who's who kind of is shifting is this very amorphous thing it depends on who you are and what time of the day and what day of the week who that person is
0: yeah it was it was exemplary it reminded me of conversations i have had with my own uh, my own parents um and I, I so i found that very very relatable and then there's the magic aspect of it you write dreamwalking a gift from from the ancestors a weapon but like any weapon, it needed respecting, caretaken, so not to blow one's own self to bits with it in, in the using. When walking in the dreams of others, the space between dreaming and madness was, was narrow. How did you settle on the, uh, the dream walking or the, or, or the magic aspect of, of what might have been otherwise a very straightforward relationship novel?
3: So uh, some of the novels that have uh, resonated the most, most with me are, you know, everyone always uh, references Toni Morrison, and that is true. Um, But, um, you know, Bailey's Cafe, and those kind of things are, Uh are also really just, it's a way of viewing the world, I think, that takes it a little bit out of the realm. Yeah. Children believe in magic. And I think there is magic in the world. I think that as we become adults, we sort of um, don't allow ourselves that space. And so I didn't want to tell the story just from a straight, there's this relationship with the mother and it's pride. And, it, and she tries to, I, I also wanted to bring in uh, some of the, that world magic. Additionally, it was a way for me to introduce some of the traditions, you know, African, yeah. West African tradition of the seer and how that would have morphed and how external traumas can change, can change things. So I th- when I weave magic into my stories I don't like high magic where it's like oh you know I can fly so much as yeah. this is a world that I recognize and anybody would recognize this mm-hmm. world, anybody would recognize Port Royal but there's an un- there's a undercurrent of spirituality to every place and everyone that doesn't often get noticed oh, I, I think that. that makes it bigger
0: Yeah yeah I love I love that that that's brilliant I found this really interesting um, since, since we're, we're talking about the bigger picture of Scotia Island and, and all these people uh, and this culture in particular, Becca and Gemma have very different views of freedom. With Scotia, um, I saw it as a metaphor. Becca views it as a dead end while Gemma feels uh, it's a safe haven. Becca says, I right. don't want uh, that kind of free. I want my babies to know my letters and their numbers. I right. want them to know more uh, than the muck in the mud uh, for someone else's rice and pull fish out of the sea for their supper. Uh, and then a bit later, um, she says, uh, we'd be sitting here waiting, uh, end up trapped like crabs in a barrel, no place to hide, no place to run, just a different kind of slave. Here uh here tell they already places Negroes be free, Negro teachers, even doctors. Becca waved her arms behind her. Imagine that, Negro doctors. That is a beautiful, beautiful sentiment and, and a and a powerful statement on Scotia and freedom.
3: And I think if you if you even trace move that forward and uh-huh. trace sort of and I and it's and again it's not meant to be didactic yes. but black black folks are not a monolith right never have right. been right and especially if you try if you even look you can even see parallels in the civil rights movement there were people who felt very strongly that this was the way this needed to go and others who disagreed vehemently mm-hmm. um who felt like, you know, after the Civil War, there were people who felt like, I want to be part of this society. I want to assimilate. And others like, no, I'm good. I'll stay here and create my own sort of universe. And so I kind of wanted to play with that a little bit that here are people that for the first time in their lives very often are given a choice and they have very different views of what that is going to look like for them when their freedom comes.
0: The safety you know versus the safety you don't.
3: Well, and for Gemma, I don't even know if it, it was about safety so much as she felt like this is mine. I worked yeah. for this. Yeah. Every day. I I I buried my child I buried children here. I yeah. I bled for this. So it's not even about safety, but you owe me this. This you know, if if anybody, if this land belongs to anybody, it belongs to the people who worked it.
2: Indeed, as, indeed. as
3: opposed to looking somewhere else for. For a life
0: which i found brought up a really interesting aspect of um a, a subtext about reparations and it, mm-hmm. it became a really unique way of talking of making it about justice and legacy right am i am i reading too much right in
3: right no no absolutely and um you you may or may not be aware that the barrier islands, Hilton Head in particular, because yeah. Hilton Head is the biggest Gullah Island, or was yeah. the biggest Gullah Island, yeah. um, that actually was where Abraham Lincoln made his first uh, declaration that everyone would get 40 acres and a mule. And mm-hmm. to some degree, a large population of the previously enslaved got that. That promise was kept. Nowhere else, but it was kept, and wasn't kept for very long, but that that area of the country was sort of the first and uh, initial response for reparations. In in Gemma's mind, that is, you know, yeah, this is mine. You owe me this. I don't need 40 acres and a mule. I just need my island.
0: Yeah, she worked for it and suffered for it. Yeah, blood for it. No spoilers, but it it has a really satisfying ending. Perhaps a parable about change and old age or even Alzheimer's disease and dementia. Uh, I, I'm just I'm looking at this as as all these different levels in in this beautiful beautiful book.
3: Yeah i I didn't want I, and my publisher and I went back and forth about this. I mean she has a much more black and white view of the characters at one point she was saying oh you know her mom did the best she could and she wasn't a bad mom like no she was a terrible person Mm -hmm. um you know or charlotte the the woman that she gets into this um kind of feud that's fought in the realm of dreams i didn't want to make anybody a villain the mom had reasons for her actions they the actions weren't necessarily good and they had dire consequences but it wasn't that she did it out of a out of malice right um same with charlotte you know charlotte did some very horrible things but she was also a very wounded person and people you know hurt people hurt people yeah use the cliche
0: she becomes a very protective um figure and and that adds a level of sympathy so there there are no clear uh there are no clear antagonists in in this novel Right. Yeah. Yeah. And you don't miss that. It becomes this very personal journey uh, uh, through, through the relationships of all these people.
3: Yeah. And I think with Layla, I mean, obviously she's the protagonist and she's going to defend her family. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there's that old adage. If you drill down, villains don't think they're villains. You know, they have very real and seemingly rational reasons for the things that they do yeah even though they may be creating havoc out in the universe and i and i think that's sort of where i saw charlotte where i saw her mother
0: mm-hmm. do you uh do you see your narrative like a movie um or do you hear dialogue first
3: i actually close my eyes and see it, it just plays that for me it feels very much what i'm writing like i'm just dictating yeah. I'm just sitting down and um, taking notes about what's already out there and what's already happening. Mm-hmm. The dialogue I have to say out loud because sometimes it looks right on a page and then you say it out loud. I was like, Oh, that doesn't sound like how people talk.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. do you Do you also see the your your protagonist clearly from the start do you do you map or or um, sort of outline your protagonist? Um, Or does that image and character evolve over time and uh, as the story evolves?
3: It evolves. Um, In the first iteration, I wrote this and I'm, oh, okay. And then I go back and I thought that I had made the, for instance, the aunts too kind of one-dimensional and they were more comical characters. Mm -hmm. And I I didn't like that at all because they were much deeper women than that. So the thing that always comes to me first is what is the historical thing that caught me that I want to tell the story. So, oh, interesting, yeah. For remembrance, it was you know kind of the um, the relationship of Haiti and how and how New Orleans and the Underground Railroad played into that. I wanted to tell that story somehow. You start out with an
0: idea and then uh, and then apply the characters
3: exactly. Oh, that's one exactly. I have to find a way to make it fit. Yeah. So for this, it was the Gulagichi and their very extraordinary history. And how, how would I tell a story of, about that? Mm-hmm. Um, but that's not necessarily set there. So the, the evolution of the relationship the mother and daughter came fairly quickly, but they certainly evolved over time. She was, I, I, as I recall in first draft, she was much more childlike, more innocent, more victim, I mm-hmm. think, mm-hmm. than she turned out to be in the final version. So they do evolve.
0: It was a wonderful, wonderful book. I, I really, really enjoyed it. Um, Thank you. I could go on and on about it, but we've only got a limited amount of time, so let me let me finish here on the crass marketing side. Any strategy or platform uh, that has worked best so far: TikTok, book signings. What what is what seems to be working for book sales for Rita
3: Woods? Honestly, what tends, I know I have a, my publisher has been very, very invested and very mm-hmm. aggressive.
2: But mm-hmm. what
3: tends to work best is when I'm able to do one-on-one kind of things. Yep. So when I go to conventions, um, I did C2E2, and um, which I thought was very interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're talking to a big group of people, and yeah. they're able to see you. And I think part of the fascination for people is they see the author as a person and then they can also kind of drill down. Yeah. Um, and because they can see you, your name, your voice, and your story rises above the noise because there's okay. so many books coming out all the time. Yeah, there are. Yeah. Um, so conventions and conferences and being able to give talks and things like that, for me, that, that seems like it's a it's a smaller thing. You're not selling hundreds at a time, yeah. but it starts to build. Yeah. Um, but you're I, making an emotional connection. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And it's um, said, old that it
0: to get it in their hand," which you right. could do in in that with that emotional connection, right?
3: Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I, you know, again with book talk, I know people say there's some success, but again, there's so many of them. Yeah. That I think the people that look that are following book talks are people that are following you anyway right i don't think you stumbled too much maybe on a, on yeah, a strangers yeah. book talk yeah whereas i think having a relation starting to build relations with, with with bookstagrammers uh-huh. is for me feels more effective than just sort of doing book talks every yeah. week or something
0: but, uh, along the, those lines i started a bit of an experiment with a uh, with a book talk hosting or page um wh- wh- how, however, however that's called you know just just in a, in a in a few so tags are really really important uh for connecting with with the audience there mm-hmm. uh, and then content making the the content interesting and compelling I think is also important so I I've already I've already gotten five or six hundred hits just on a few posts um, so that, that's, that's sort of this, this work in progress ahead of my, uh, my upcoming novel, Right. but that remains to be seen how that translates into sales, but like anything, but, uh, right. you know, I, I spoke with, uh, uh, just recently with, with, uh, one of last year's winners, Mark Hudson, uh, who wrote a, uh, a book about uh, the uh, four brothers who uh, who died in World War Two in, in one family, and uh, oh, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, so costly a sacrifice. And his biggest success with with selling the book has been face to face, getting it in yeah. the hands of of readers and and actually speaking with them. And and he's uh, he, that's that's been. That seems to be the the classic way, right?
3: The other thing I think that helps a little bit um, yeah. is one of the things I hadn't anticipated was how many other authors that you get to meet yeah. and forming relationships and alliances and then saying, hey, you want to have a have an event um, and, and doing it so it's a slightly off genre so that it's not pure fantasy or pure historical or That's pure great. like Carrie Mayher uh just came out with a book and she was in town so we met and then um and 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 then we decided well why don't we do something together Mm -hmm. and even though hers is purely historical and mine is magical realism with a historical bent, there's Mm -hmm. enough of a kind of a a overlap in the venn diagram Mm -hmm. that we're pulling in slightly separate audiences but i i've been trying to do a lot more of that because that seems to be Effective too. Like, the, yeah. say, oh, I never heard of that book. And yeah,
0: vice versa. yeah. Oh, that's that's a that's that's a great suggestion. Um, I'm I'm definitely going to be exploring that. In the meantime, uh, Rita Wood's latest novel, The Last Dreamwalker, was just named one of the Chicago Writers Association's Book of the Year. Uh, an absolute page turner that will hold you right through to the very last word. Her website is Rita Woods Writes. Um, thank you, Rita. This was this was brilliant. Thank you. And our website, chicagorights.org, is a resource for your writing success as well. Chicago Writes offers tools and a wealth of information to help you become the writer that you were meant to be. Check out our blog with tips and insights on the art and business of writing by some of Chicago's best-known writers, like marketing tips, the importance of networking, where and how to find better readers, the pros and cons of indie publishing, the art of misdirection, how to keep your readers on their toes, and so much more 24-7, 365 days a year at chicagorights.org. You've been listening to Chicago Writes, the podcast of the Chicago Writers Association. The Chicago Writers Association is a 501c3 charitable organization. To find out more, visit chicagorights.org. Our theme song is Midnight Ride, courtesy of Dino Lovchich. You can find Dino's music, just like this program, on Spotify. And we're always looking for ways to better this program and make it more useful for you, the writer. Feel free to let me know any suggestions for guests or topics that you would like to see on this program. Contact me at William Turk, that's William, T-U-R-C-K, all one word, lowercase, at yahoo.com. And please begin your subject line with CWA suggestion. And that will do it for this episode of Chicago Writes. Until next time, I'm your host, W.C. Turk.